You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when you have gotten there, go ahead and stand with me if you're able this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boats the other side, a great, uh, great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, uh, excuse me, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving Um, in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd uh, pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them uh, that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week, especially if it's your first time. We're really glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy yourself with us this morning. I want to also say happy Palm Sunday, so it's an exciting day. We're entering into Holy Week, and uh, I'm excited about that. I hope you are too. Just want to have a reminder, we're going to have our uh, Easter gatherings on next Sunday, so invite your family and friends. Uh, to celebrate with you the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Like Scott said, we've been working through the book of Mark this year, and so we're going to continue on, even though it's Palm Sunday, uh, we're going to continue on with the passage uh, that's next for us in Mark. Uh, And one of those reasons is very practical. We've got a lot of work to get through to get through the end of the year, so I don't want to lie and say that that's not part of the reason, because it is, okay? Got to get through this. Uh, The other piece, though, is um, we could have made some room and tried to work around certain standalones, But this passage actually has a thematic uh, parallel with the thematic parallels of Palm Sunday. That being, if you're unfamiliar with Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem just before Holy Week. He tells his disciples that 
there will be a donkey that's attached to a pole or they could go to this man's house and grab the donkey and if you're asked, just say, my master has need of it. Which is a little bit daunting if you think about it from the disciples. They have to go steal a donkey and then say, hope that it works out. So they do exactly that. They take the donkey. Man comes out, what are you doing stealing my, my mule? And he says, the master has need of it. And he goes, oh, okay, we'll go ahead and take the donkey. And so he does. And uh, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, which fulfills a prophecy. And they all lay down palm branches at his feet, and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, meanwhile, the scribes and the Pharisees have great trouble with this. How dare you uh, worship him in this way? And Jesus has the response, if it, if it isn't for these, the, even the rocks will cry out and worship me. And so, of course, we know that those, that same crowd-like mentality is turned on its head throughout Holy Week. And before the end, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. The king rides into Jerusalem, not on a, a, a horse that would be a, an animal of war, but he rides in on a beast of burden, and he carries our burden to the cross. He takes a crown of thorns, not a crown of gems, and then he goes into the grave and he's resurrected. Now, there's a parallel between this and Mark, and before I pray, I just want to kind of set it up, and that is that in the same way that Jesus exercises his authority in a way that is counter to our fleshly intuitions when he, when he rides in on a colt and lays his life down. Even so, in this passage, we're going to get kind of a, a bookend to the first five chapters of Mark where Jesus has consistently, from the beginning of his ministry, laid out for us that he has authority over all creation. He shows us he has authority over the waters. He has authority over sins. He has authority over the demons. He has authority over the moral law. He has authority over the ceremonial law. He has authority over sickness. Over and over, Jesus wants us to know this. And in this passage, I believe he sews that up and gives us a kind of bookend to say, this is how the king's new kingdom will be. And so before we jump in, my, I want to pray for us. I want to pray that the Lord gives us a heart to cry out like the crowds did, <clears throat> but with sincerity of heart, and welcome the Lord Jesus even now because he's promised that his presence is with us and that God would give us ears to hear his word this morning. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you this Palm Sunday that the gospel is still true, that Lord Jesus, you still reign, that you sit upon a throne in the heavens and that your intention is that your kingdom will come even on earth as it is in heaven today. We pray now that you would open our ears. Help us, my God, to hear from your word. Where we're dull of hearing, we pray that you would quicken us. Where our hearts are hardened, we pray that you would tenderize our hearts. Plant the seeds in good soil and find that good soil within us so that it might bear a 30, 60, or 100-fold harvest to your glory. And Lord, you know what we all need, and so I pray that with my feeble efforts as a man, you would supernaturally give us all what we so desperately need through the power of your word and the ministration of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So let's just start in uh, Mark chapter number five, and let's just read through this together. My hope is to get through two major themes, one being the personal and obvious theme that we can relate to as Christians individually, and then hopefully by the end also what seems to me to be a very corporate collective theme that is meant to be a message to Israel and to the church. Um, and one that we can celebrate on Palm Sunday together, hopefully. And what the way I want to do this is try and get through and just kind of read through the text, get us familiarized with it, maybe do a little bit of pausing, and then we'll try to dive in with some 
hopefully helpful application. You know, jury's still out, we'll see. You can tell me later. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Now, we got to remember, Jesus has just come back from the country of the Gerasenes, where he has cast out the, the demons from the man who had legion. And the people of that city said, please leave from us, depart from this region. We don't want you to be around here because if you remember, the demons went into the pigs and over 2,000 pigs ran off of a cliff, which made the people both greatly scared and also it was a great hit to them economically and they send Jesus away. So Jesus arrives on the other side of the shore and just like what happened to him when when he arose in the country of the Gerasenes, as soon as he steps off the boat, people run to him and then one man runs and falls at his feet. Now, there should be a parallel in our minds. The demon-possessed man ran to Jesus and fell at his feet. Here comes a ruler of the synagogue, runs to Jesus, falls at his feet. So let's continue. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went out to be with him. Okay, so... What we see here, and if you're a father in the room, then your heart should immediately go out. This ruler of the synagogue has a little girl who is at the point of death. She's dying, and he's pleading, please, if you lay your hands on her, she'll be healed. You have to come now. And the Bible wants us to know, Mark, particularly writing this, wants us to know there's an urgency here. There's a Greek word here that we don't see in English, but the translators probably went through painstaking tasks to translate, and it's... A one Greek word that leads to a phrase, at the point of death. The root of this Greek word, without getting too uh, deep into it, is the same root for the way that the, the word we get, eschatology. If you've studied eschatology, it means you're studying end times or last things. And that same root word that we use for eschatology is translated here, at the point of death. What's being communicated by Mark? This situation is urgent. She's at the last. The last of her breaths are happening now. There's an apocalyptic feeling the father's having in his heart. If Jesus doesn't show up, this is the end of his little girl's life. Now, if you're a parent, you know that this is worst case scenario. This is all the stuff that, you know, we do everything that we can in our homes to make sure that nothing like this ever happens, right? And yet still we know that at our best efforts sometimes, we find ourselves in this great travesty, in this great moment. Now watch what happens here with Mark. It's very interesting. It doesn't happen often uh, in the Gospels, but it does happen sometimes. You're about to get a story within a story. So listen to what happens next. So a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. The same great crowd at the sea decides, as everyone does, we talked about this before, we're all rubberneckers. Let's just see what goes on here. Let's just go along with Jesus and see what's going to happen. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And it's who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? 
He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, what we get is, a, again, another story, a story within a story, a woman who's had a blood hemorrhage for 12 years. Every reader of the book of Mark would have known immediately what this meant according to Old Testament Levitical law. For us, we have to actually read and do some Old Testament study to know why this is even important. We feel bad for her, but we don't understand quite how deep the issue goes. You see, in Leviticus 15, according to Levitical law, this woman would have been ritualistically unclean. And she would have been so as long as her hemorrhage lasted, which is now 12 years. Now, what would that mean? It would have meant that she was socially isolated for sure, sleeping in her own tent, not able to be with any family. But it goes beyond just not being able to be around others. She couldn't touch people. People couldn't touch her. Her clothes couldn't touch people unless they were going to then be unclean. She couldn't touch other people's clothes because then she would make those clothes unclean and unwearable. It was drastic. This woman was not merely socially isolated. She was religiously isolated. She would not be able to attend temple. She would not be able to attend worship. But the Bible goes on as though that weren't bad enough. Mark wants you to know she's also impoverished and bankrupted by her disease. She's tried everything with every doctor and used every penny to try and fix this problem because she wants to be healed. The Bible records that the doctors took her money and made her worse. That's a terrible feeling, by the way. In the same way that if you're a parent, you can relate to the father. If you've ever been sick and suffering, you can relate to this. If you've ever talked with someone, or maybe you are this person who's had an ailment that no one can give you answers for, it's one of the most frustrating things in the world. Lots of money used, looking for wisdom, feeling sick every day, trying new medicines, none of it working. But this woman's got insult to injury. It's because her illness actually impacts her everyday life as an Israelite. She is at the dregs of society. And yet she thinks as a last-ditch effort, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. Now what's interesting is in all of this, she does that, and she is. It's immediate. She knows that it happens, and Jesus knows that something happened. She just touches the hem of his garment. Jesus stops in the middle of the crowd. She says, oh my goodness, I've been made well. And he says, who touched me? Now, you've got to really feel for the disciples here. Okay, this is one of those moments again where every chance that Jesus has to maybe make good with some of the elites of society, maybe get the ministry off the ground, you know, maybe have a big event where more people join the church, Jesus seems to just destroy the whole opportunity wholesale. You know, here he has the chief ruler of the synagogue and he's begging Jesus for help. The disciples are like, this is our moment. Maybe the scribes and the Pharisees will get off our back. Maybe they'll join and say, you know what? Maybe he is really the Messiah. Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to go to your house. And they're like, finally, it's going to happen. They start walking. And then Jesus stops in an urgent moment. Remember, a apocalyptic moment for this man who's who's a ruler, an elite. And Jesus just stops in the middle of a crowd and says, who touched me? The disciples are like, please stop. Don't do this to us. You know that everyone's touching you. Don't do this. I love that the Bible records Jesus doesn't even talk to them. He ignores them. He keeps looking around. They're like, Jesus, let's let's keep this train moving. 
this woman, obviously, she knows that Jesus isn't going to let it go, right? (laughs) Jesus is going to continue on. Who did this? The woman comes up to him, and the Bible records, tells him the whole truth. Now, this is pretty miraculous if you think about it. She could have just said, it was me, which would have been half the truth. But what she says is, it was me, and I know I shouldn't have done it. I just made you unclean. That's what the law said. I know I should have done it, Rabbi. I should not have touched your garments. I'm sorry. I've made you ritualistically unclean. She, goes, she just tells him the whole story, okay? Now, it's really important that we note, if she tells him a 12-year story, how long you think this takes? The disciples are probably like, you got to imagine Jairus. He's probably like, is this for real? Is he... This woman, why is he taking so long? I don't think it's coincidental that it's a woman. I think all of this is Jesus having his ways, communicating a deeper message about his plan. And then as the woman is spoken to by Christ as daughter, your faith has made you well, which is a key line. It says, go in peace. The Bible is clear to record that while Jesus is still speaking, there came someone from the ruler's house saying, your daughter's dead. I would contend that Jesus, as he did with Lazarus later, holds up the crowd to let this come to full fruition. He wants this to happen. He's interested in not just healing her, but raising this girl from the dead. Your daughter's dead, why trouble the teacher any further, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus, he looks to Jairus and he says, Jairus, don't listen to them. Don't be afraid, just believe. That's the faith. These are, he said, you remember you told me? You said if I laid my hands on her, I could heal her. You know, I could still do that. Don't be afraid, just believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion People weeping and wailing loudly. Okay, this here is very cultural. We have to understand what it is. In the traditions of the Jewish people, you had to have professional mourners at the death scene and at the funerals of your people. Okay, so even the poor, even the poorest among you had to have a flute player and you had to have a wailer at the funeral of your family members who would cry, throw dust in the air, dust on their heads, and they'd wail and cry out following the casket through to the, through the ceremony. Now, for us, this is not common for us, okay? It's not common for our culture. We'd be like, that's insane. You got to imagine the chief ruler of the synagogue, what kind of mourners he's got at his place. This probably looks like a college football marching band of commotion. I'm just telling you, this man's wealthy, and they come into his house. It's probably crying, weeping, throwing dust up from the moment Jesus walks in, and Jesus comes in and says, what's all the fuss about? She's just sleeping. Now, the mourners... The Bible says, mock him. They laugh at him. They make fun of him. Like, oh, here comes the rabbi. See, they're familiar with dead people. They're professional paid mourners. They see it all the time. Like, this girl's dead. Jesus says, no, she's not. So when he entered, he says, why are you making the commotion and weeping? The child's not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. But what does he do? He puts him outside. He says, okay, you leave now. Get out. So Jesus does, you know, that thing at the party when it gets a little out of hand. Everybody out. Everybody out. Kicks everybody out of the house except for who? Mom dad, Peter, James, John, this handful of kind of critical people. And then what? 
Taking her by the hand, he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. So she doesn't kind of like hazily, you know, come to, and then they have to put her IV in her and take her off. No, she gets up, starts walking. And they're immediately overcome with amazement. He charged them, don't tell anyone about this, and then says, give her something to eat. So she gets up and she's hungry. This is madness. So two stories in one interlocked, and really they have similar themes in them, don't they? And we'll get to why I think they have similar themes. But one thing that we need to see is that in both situations, what you expect to happen, the exact opposite thing happens. The Bible records if an unclean woman with a discharge of blood touches a priest rabbi, he is now ritualistically unclean. The exact opposite thing happens, he makes her clean. The Bible records that if you touch a corpse, you are unclean. You can't touch dead people. The chief ruler of the synagogue would have known this. And yet Jesus walks into his house and touches his dead daughter. And instead of him becoming unclean, what does he do? The girl comes to life. Now the name Jairus, which is going to be important in a moment, all the details of the Bible matter. The name Jairus literally means he will enlighten or he will awaken. So this man's name given to him before he ever had children was he will awaken, which seems to be significant considering the miracle. But I think it's even more significant than you can imagine. He will enlighten. So let's start with the personal. I promised you that I'd have the personal and then we'd see the corporate. What's personally happening here? How can we personally apply this? Well, we see Jesus and how he handles hopeless situations. Most assuredly, chapter 5 is three hopeless situations. We're only focused on two. But let's agree that the man with the legion of demons who can break his own chains off living amongst the tombs, it's not exactly a posh life. Jesus seems to be doing things that are absolutely supernatural. And this may be one of the most intimately relatable passages to you if you are someone who's suffered because what we see in both of these is long-term suffering and that pang of immediate suffering that you get when you realize something terrible has happened and you can't fix it. If you, maybe you've had that phone call. Maybe you've had that moment in your life. And here we see Christ stepping into these massively hopeless situations and turning everything on its head. When you read the scriptures, and I think this is true, also, anecdotally, the people who have the most wisdom, the people who tend to have the most to offer are the people that I know have suffered deeply, who have been on the brink of desperation, had nothing that they could offer and nothing that the world had them to offer, and still they held on to the hem of Christ's garment. Those are the people that I want to lean into and figure out, how did that go? How did you pull that off? See, Jesus teaches in this simple interaction that we ought to never give up in hopeless circumstances because all circumstances, all issues, all things reside under the providence of the mighty hand of Jesus Christ. You see, these, these people think they're seeking Jesus out, but you're going to see here in a moment, no, the providence of God brought these people into Christ's path. And perhaps, perhaps we can say like Joseph that the enemy had 
plans for evil, but God meant them for good and the saving of many lives. See, obviously there is another force. We've seen it since, like last week's sermon. There's another force, the legions that work to bring evil, like to the woman or to the little girl. But then there's the plan of God, which seems to be manifested here in the lives of these two women. But maybe you felt like King David before, like King David says in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Well, here we see the emphatic answer that Christ's give gives us in this passage. God has not abdicated his throne. God does not step aside. We ask, who orchestrates the sands of time? Who's doing all of this? Well, this passage seems to tell us clearly. It's God Almighty. Who else can raise a little girl from death to life? But the question that comes in the moment of crisis, and it comes for Jairus and it comes for this woman, is when everything else fails in the valley of decision, in whom will you put your trust? And both to Jairus and to the woman, Jesus seems to be telling them, you should trust me. Daughter, your faith has made you well. When every other act didn't heal her, her faith in Christ did. Jairus, do not fear, but only believe. And his little girl rose. Or as David says in Psalm 20, verses 7 through 8, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. You see, whether or not you are in that valley of decision, that difficult suffering or not, I want to encourage you. We exercise our faith in the small things so that when the storms come, we will be ready and willing to exercise that self-same faith in the face of the deepest hardship and opposition. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they find themselves before the Babylonian kings. Or maybe like Job. You see, no confession of faith matters more than the confession that you will give on the day when the enemy has placed all of his arrows towards you and he's ready to deliver the death blow. This happened for Job when all of his family was killed by storms and his wife even turned to him and said, you fool, why don't you just curse God and die? And in his own ashes, his own ashes filled with calamity, he says, naked I came into this world and naked I shall leave this world. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, this seems to be what's being exercised here out in front with both Jairus and the woman. And maybe you're seated here and you feel convicted. You say, my God, I have failed that many times. And here's what I have for you is the self-same grace that the Lord extended to Peter on the shores after Peter denied him three times in Holy Week is extended now to you. If you have breath in your lungs still, guess what? The nail-scarred hands of the Lord Jesus reach out to you in mercy. But they reach out to you with a call. Do not fear, only believe. Maybe you're in the valley today and you need to hear this. Do not fear, Jairus, only believe. Don't listen to the professional mourners. They know much about death, but they do not know the Lord of life. Hear me, Jairus, believe, believe, believe. Don't heed the words of your wife, Job. Listen to me, believe. I think lastly, before we move into the corporate piece, is 
the scriptures want us to understand that we all, whether we're suffering today or not, stand in the place of this woman. We stand in the place of Jairus. Have you ever wondered why the Bible seems to be intent on you knowing that the last days are upon you? Is it because, is it because the God's an alarmist? You ever wondered this? Why there seems to be a very imminent threat kind of hanging over all the time? Seriously, have you thought this through? Was God wrong in this? Well, no, this passage is giving us, I think, great insight, and that is every single human being that has ever lived is in the eschaton. We don't know if right now we are mere breaths away from meeting our maker. We don't know if we're mere days away, months away. Maybe there's years, maybe there's not. Interestingly, and I'll say because, you know, this little girl's 12 years old. When I was 12 years old, I was on the road driving with my father uh, just to go to a golf tournament, a junior golf tournament. It's an everyday thing. You just do this. You travel. And you know what happened that day? I was in an accident. My father was killed. My life was changed forever. No one gave me a phone call beforehand to warn me. It just didn't happen. There was no signs, no rainbows in the clouds. I didn't wake up thinking, you know what might happen today? Something bad. Didn't happen that way. The Bible gives us this intense urgency about the day, like today is the day of salvation, because friends, we are but a mere breath away. And the calling to us today is, do not fear, believe, receive the king who rides into Jerusalem. His hands are reached out to you today. Now, we must be sure, and I am very certain, that Mark wants to connect these two stories. Why do I say that? Well, the most obvious is they're overlapping, right? So it's, hey, there's Jairus, then there's the woman, and then Jairus again. That's pretty obvious. But there's more details, and God, God never puts in the scriptures details that are unnecessary, okay? These details, they matter. For instance, the fact that it's two women that are in the story. One who's an older woman, one who's a younger woman. For instance, the fact that each of these stories have to do with ceremonial, ritualistic uncleanness. Or maybe the most obvious, and maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but the fact that one of them has, been, has had an issue of blood for 12 years and the other one has been on the earth for 12 years. Now, when you see things like that, you got to see, especially when it's put in parentheses, that means that Mark went out of his way to let you know, oh, yeah, the little girl was 12 years old. He wants you to know this. Well, what's the significance of 12? Well, you could go in the Bible, and I'll just tell you. And you have to be careful with numerics because there is much symbolic meaning in numbers in the Bible. And you can go too far with that, you know, where you're just adding up a a lot of different numbers. They all turn out to be 666, which is your, like, you know, your father-in-law's, you know, name or something, you know, because you're really mad at your in-laws, and so it's his fault or, you know. But this this can go awry pretty quickly. But I want to say there's another reaction to that, which is to say that there's no, there's no uh, meaning to that at all. And that just seems to me to be asinine. The Bible so obviously brings symbolic meaning to numbers, it's hard to get away from it. And I'll give you an example with 12. I, I wish I had more time, but I'll just give you some, and hopefully I make my case. But the most obvious is you have 12 sons of Jacob representing the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You have 12 stones on the high priestly breastplate. Moses is told to put these 12 stones When the children of Israel make it to the edge of the promised land, Moses says, let's get some spies and go spy out the land, see how it's going to be. And they pick 12 spies. 
to go out and spy out the land. Later, when the kingdom is inaugurated, King Solomon, after his father's death, decides that he wants to appoint different rulers so that he can have a better feel for governing Israel, so he appoints 12 rulers over Israel. We make our way into the New Testament, and it's obvious. You get here in chapter 6 of Mark next week, we'll talk about it, but we get 12 disciples corresponding to the same number of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then by the time you get to Revelation, the number just starts to explode. You just kind of see it everywhere. For instance, you see 144,000 people who are a remnant of Israel that God chooses to save. That's 12,000 times 12. Each of the tribes gets 12,000. And then once we get to the New Jerusalem, it, it really just gets out of hand. There's 12 gates with 12 pearls, each inscribed with 12 names of the 12 tribes. There's 12 foundations with the 12 names of the 12 apostles with 12 different gemstones on it. 12 kinds of fruit that line the river of life. An angel shows up and measures the city, and oh, behold, it's 12,000 stadia and 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12. So I say all that to say, I think maybe there's something going on with 12, you know? Now, remember where we are in this narrative. So far in the first five, books, or first five chapters of the book of Mark, the Jewish people are themselves, much like the, the woman who's hemorrhaging and must, much like Jairus, they are in a hopeless situation. They are under Roman occupation. They are led by scribes and Pharisees that have been so spiritually compromised that they no longer lead them to God. Actually, they lead them explicitly away from God or in Jesus' own words, when they make one disciple, they make him twofold the child of hell that they are. Metaphorically, the entire system of authority, governing authority in Israel, is hemorrhaging. They're like the young girl gasping their last breath, and Jesus delivers this unmistakable message to them. I believe this passage is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter number 9. I want to read to you verses 2 through 7. I want to remind you of Jairus' meaning of his name, which is, he will enlighten Here's what Isaiah said. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And before I go on, this is a prophecy about a Messiah who will conquer, who will fix all of this tyranny. You've got to think that the Jews are pretty excited about that. And Jesus is clearly wants them to know that he's that guy. And it just so happens that every commentator all across the board all agree that at bare minimum, the number 12 has to do with authority and governing. It's God's way of putting out his governing authorities into the earth, whether it's the tribes, whether it's the sons of Israel, whether it's the high priestly gemstones, or whether it's the disciples. This is God's way of saying, I am going to apportion authority. And so Jesus gives us two 12s here in this passage, and then Isaiah goes on to say what? For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and what's going to be on his shoulder? The government will be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I just want to remind you of Jesus' words when he overthrew the temple, the place of authority. He said, the zeal for my father's house has consumed me. He's bringing a message. Now, as the Jews would expect, he think, they think he's coming to lay it down against the Romans. Jesus seems to have most of his arguments with the religious Jews. He's having some big fights with Pharisees and scribes, almost like he's ignoring Herod. In fact, he just says, tell that fox what I'm doing. I got business to tend to. Jesus has most of his, really the only angry outburst that we see, like when he fashions his own whip, for instance, is in the temple. I mean, I will say, if you read Isaiah, you kind of understand where the disciples are coming from. When is this thing coming? So when Palm Sunday shows up, you kind of understand why they might be thinking, it's on. Jesus does the exact opposite. He lays his life down. But never forget what happens early Sunday morning. Never forget what happens as Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. And what actually gets torn up, the temple gets torn up. All of a sudden, there begins to be a temple veil that's torn into. Earthquakes happen. My contention is Christ says here in this passage what will happen, and it's what's being instituted when he rides into Jerusalem, and that is, I am instituting a new government, and Israel and the temple system will be over because my body is the temple of God that will be rent for all. He's saying, I, not, I am not only going to take Israel, Europe bleeding out, hemorrhaging, dying, little girl who's died and laying on your deathbed. Not only am I going to raise you up, but I'm going to raise you up in a new covenant that brings in, I'm going to graft in this wild offshoot, this Gentile group, and I'm going to build a new people that isn't built on this temple. Here, you won't worship on this mountain or on that mountain, but you'll worship in spirit and in truth. And it will be by what? It will be by your faith, daughter, has made you well. I am going to institute a new government that's going to be instituted not on the basis of works, not on the basis of cleansing rituals, but on the basis of grace through faith. He looks to the disciples and he tells them this. Whether they knew this or not, friends, in the very next chapter, Jesus gives us another 12. And guess what that 12 is? The 12 disciples are sent out. He wants everyone to know. It's no coincidence a ruler of the synagogue comes and falls at his feet he thinks it's because he's had a bad day. He knows little that this is a cosmic orientated issue. This man's story will be told for 2,000 years. Do you think he ever thought that? Do you think that your suffering perhaps might be bigger than you? Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian, you must believe this. It's the very pattern of the gospel. It's that suffering, death leads to resurrection for us. How about this? What does Jesus tell us? Take up your cross and follow me. Or as Paul said, I have died. I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live to the Son of God. We believe that it's death. It's through the cross that the resurrection comes. That means we believe it's, very, it's through the suffering that life is born. How? Because we hold on to the hem of the one's garment who came out of the tomb. Listen, friends, we're all going to the tomb. Who are you going to hold on to to get you out? Now, I know it's been a rough week. We've been watching the news. Probably feel this way. 
I was reading Habakkuk and I thought this kind of sums up our time. Habakkuk says in the early chapters, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Cry to you for violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at the wrong? Destruction and violence before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. Jesus' response to this is to show us how in seemingly terrible suffering and in seemingly inconsequential acts, God raises the dead to life. In chapter number six, Jesus is going to do something totally innocuous, seemingly inconsequential. His contemporaries would have looked at this and laughed. They would have thought nothing just happened. This crazy guy's out in the wilderness. You know what it is? He chooses 12 disciples and names them and calls them to himself. Everyone around mocked like the mourners mocked. They probably thought, who is this guy who thinks he, he can appoint these new apostles? And yet, from that small ragtag group of followers, the very foundations of Rome itself will be shaken to the core within just a few generations. Within a few generations, the Roman emperor will have to say there are more of you than there are of us. The entire globe will be shaken by these 12. Nations will be shaped. The world itself will be changed. And how? Because they will carry with them a brand new message of a brand new covenant and a brand new king with a brand new government. And the message is this, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, we can be saved. This is the message delivered to Jairus. It's the message delivered to the woman with the issue of blood. And it's the same message that we preach every single Sunday. Why? It's the message of life, eternal life. And so, this morning, we have a hope in Christ. Listen to me, if you're a Christian that goes beyond illness, it goes beyond social ostracization, it goes beyond uncleanness, it goes beyond poverty, it goes beyond suffering, it even goes beyond death. We have a hope that goes beyond political alignments. We, go, we have a hope that goes beyond global cataclysms, beyond even your greatest fear. The book of Hebrews says you have an anchor that has gone into the holiest of holies, a steadfast anchor for the soul that holds. And it holds, friends, because it is Christ himself. And the word of God has told us that he has promised us eternal good and he has sealed it with an oath by which he has sworn by himself. The book of Hebrews says, why did he swear by himself? Because he had nothing greater to swear by. And so I give you the same words that Jesus gave Jairus this morning, and that is, do not fear, but believe. Believe where? In the perfect and spotless and holy name of Jesus. King Jesus this morning who still rules and still reigns. He hasn't abdicated his throne. Do not put your trust in horses, not in chariots, not in your money, not in your acclaim, not in your popularity, not in your job, not in your 401k, not in your winsomeness, not in your humor, not in your looks, not in your beauty, not in your government, not in kings, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we put our hope there, then we too can be sure that we have a steadfast anchor that will hold, friends.
I commend them to you this morning. Let me pray. Father, you are king and you reign and we thank you for the friends under the sound of my voice who perhaps are in the valley of suffering, in the valley of the shadow of death. I pray that your life-giving presence would bring hope to them this morning. For my friends who may not be there, I pray, my God, that you would remind them that we never know when we are but a breath away from meeting you face to face. And so we choose this day to place our faith both with our heart and with our, the, with our mouth, with the confession of our words. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We trust you above our own selves and above any substitute. And I pray now that as we take of your supper, that it would be an act not merely of religious tradition, but it would be an act of faith. That this means of grace you've extended to us, by faith we take and remember you, Lord Jesus, that you are our king both now and forevermore. And we pray it in your precious name. Amen.